Good morning, everyone. Uh, the Bible reading this morning is from 1 Samuel chapter 5, and it's verse 1 to verse 12. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning, when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day, neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who entered Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumours. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon, our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Have the ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath. So they moved the, God, uh, the ark of the God of Israel. But after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into a great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumours. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. As the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, Send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place, or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumours, and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. Well, good day, everyone. Again, my name is Scott. It's really good to be here with you this morning. Australia has voted. We've chosen our leaders, people who are going to be our representatives for the next three years. And despite all the electioning and all the campaigning, we've basically said we want what we already had. There's no real, there's no change of governing party. There's no change of prime minister, at least not for a few months. In fact. <laughs> There really hasn't even been that, a change that many, that many seats haven't really changed hands either. And you know, all this has happened with a real minimum of fuss. Last night, the defeated leader graciously conceded defeat. The victorious leader thanked him for doing so, and now we just get on with life. It's business as usual. This is actually something to give thanks to God for, because in so many places across the world, that, that kind of thing doesn't happen. Indonesia held elections in April this year. The incumbent president claimed victory, but his challenger 
alleged fraud and asked all his supporters to protest. They haven't even announced a winner yet. An official winner has not been announced. That's supposed to happen later this week. But Indonesia has had to deploy 32,000 security personnel throughout the capital city because they're worried about a militant attack during the announcement. It's crazy, isn't it? It's completely the opposite of Australia. We're making our way through the book of 1 Samuel this turn, and today we pick it up in chapter 5. And as it begins, Israel is not so much like Australia. It's much more like Indonesia. There's a transition of power that's going on. But unlike Australia, where we just go on with business as usual, in Israel, as in Indonesia, the nation is in crisis about it. There's chaos. In fact, Israel faced three big crises. Firstly, their God has been defeated. Secondly, his ark has been carried away. And so thirdly now, the Philistines were their overlords. But actually, overshadowing these three crises is far more, a far bigger concern, and that is this. There is no leader in the land. Eli had been the judge in Israel. He's just died. There'd been two likely successors, his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, but they've also just died. So who's left? Who's going to come in and rescue them? Who's going to bring this nation back from the brink? It's chaos. They need someone. And so the way forward, how Israel is going to get out of this mess, is anyone's guess. But in fact, it's into that mess, it's into the chaos, that Israel's greatest leader steps up and takes the lead. Let's take a look at the story then. As chapter 5 begins... Uh, the, 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 rather than, than being in Israel, the narrative goes to the land of Philistine, the Philistine territory. And, and that's where we go too. Along with the ark, we're, over, we're looking now in Philistine territory. And the ark of God is put in the temple of Dagon. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Dagon. He was a god of the Philistines. Some people think he was a fish god. Some people think he had something to do with farming and agriculture. But either way, it doesn't matter. The ark of God has been put into the temple of Dagon. It's supposed to be a degrading thing for God. It's expressing that Dagon has won and God has lost. And because God has lost, his ark now sits in Dagon's temple. It's an expression of Dagon's superiority. But within 48 hours, the mood changes entirely. After the Philistines wake up on that first night, they find Dagon. He's fallen down before the Ark of God. It's as if Dagon is in a position where he's worshipping God. And so the Philistines come back in and they lift him, they heave and they pull him, they get him right back in, back in his right spot. And you can imagine the person who's writing 1 Samuel, they're starting to have a bit of a giggle at this point, right? What kind of a God is this? Check it out, he can't even stand up for himself. I think that picture from the Brick Testament captured it brilliantly, right? A little to the left, a little to the left. Oh, no, a little bit back there. Uh, Is that right? I don't know yet. And if that causes some giggles, the next scene is supposed to bring on big belly laughs. They come in the next morning and look at verse 4. There was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and his hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. It's an embarrassing defeat for a god 
It's supposed to cause laughter amongst Israel's people. And it's supposed to remind them that there is no one who is equal to their God. At the start of chapter 5, there was this picture of chaos. And part of that chaos was that God had been defeated. Because that's what the ancient world thought, you know. If you go into battle against another nation, and they go into battle against you, and if you lose to them, it's because your God has lost to their God. But here God gives an open demonstration. Dagon is not the victor. God is. In fact, when Dagon is exposed to God, we see what Dagon really is. He's nothing. He can't go anywhere. That's why he needs people to come and lift him back up when he falls over. He can't do anything. That's why his arms are fallen off. He can't think for himself or even speak. That's why his head is cut off. God's reminding his people that there is no one, no other who is equal to God. And so God reminds us that he wants our exclusive worship. That's the first point for today. God wants our exclusive worship. See, when it comes to other gods or idols, they don't really stand up next to God. They pale into comparison. They seem to be what they really are, which is nothing. And so, God wants our exclusive worship. That was a revolutionary idea back in the ancient times. Back in the ancient times, they had lots of gods, and to get certain outcomes, you needed to worship certain gods at certain times. So this idea of one God was really revolutionary back then. And I think it's just as revolutionary today, isn't it? So today we're told to be tolerant of others. That if someone has a religious view, you've got to say, yes, you're right. In fact, to say there's one God is to be far too narrow. But the God of the Bible won't settle for being one amongst many. He wants to be our one and only God. That might sound intolerant, but in fact, it's not if it's true. Maybe you're here today and you're not really sure about the whole God thing. You find Jesus maybe just a little bit off-putting. Maybe this is one of the reasons why. But we want to be very clear. God says, no, I am the only God. I want your exclusive worship. So let me ask you, how are you going with that? Now, not many of us in Australia are likely to have little idols set up in our living rooms that we go home and sacrifice to. There's no little shrines there for us. But in fact, we do have idols set up in our lives, don't we? Let me put it this way. Um, I want to ask a question. What are you most afraid to lose in life? Because that's the question that can often reveal what we truly value. It's the question that can often reveal what our real God is. So what is it for you? Family? Career? Money? The things that money can get you? Possessions? Comfort? Your reputation? God wants our exclusive worship. Does he have yours? Here's the second point for today. 
God is never captive to those who oppose him. This really follows on from what we've already seen. Uh, God wasn't really defeated by Dagon, nor is he really captive to the Philistines. And you see it in painful detail, painful for the Philistines, that is. Wherever the ark of God goes, devastation follows. The ark goes to the city called Ashdod, and the people start growing these awful tumors. In fact, there's a little bit of uncertainty about entirely exactly what that word means. Uh, it certainly means some kind of growth, so that's why we get the word tumors. But some people have suggested the kind of growth, it, it could be actually hemorrhoids. But really, it doesn't make that much of a difference. Life for the people of Ashdod is not very good. So they move the Ark of God to Gath. And you know what happens? In Gath, the same thing all over again. And they try and move the Ark then to Ekron, but the people of Ekron freak out. They, they see the Ark of God coming and they've heard the stories and they say, no, 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 stop. We don't want any part of this. Look at what they say in verse 10. They've brought the Ark of the God of Israel around to kill us and our people. They're terrified. Again, in verse 11, they tell, they tell the leaders, send the Ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it'll kill us and our people. It all gets quite comical what happens next. So the leaders of Israel, they don't, uh, sorry, the leaders of the Philistines don't actually know what to do at this point. They don't want to send it to another city because no one really wants it to come to their city, but, but they think this is a great sign that they're victor- victorious, so they don't want to let go of the ark either. And so they sit there for seven months and they do nothing. And the tumors keep coming, and the tumors keep coming, and they do nothing. Then after seven months, the people get so fed up with their leadership, they try something for themselves. They get together some religious kind of people, uh, and they say to them, how have we got to get rid of this ark? How do we send it back to where it came from? And these religious people tell them, well, you know what you need to do? You need to go away and you need to make little gold models. Make, some, make gold models of the rats, because apparently there's rats that are infesting land as well. Make gold models of those rats. And, and in fact, make gold, gold models of the tumours that are growing on your arms and on your bodies as well. God, why gold? Doesn't it just sound silly, doesn't it? What doesn't make any sense at all? They've got no idea what to do here. In fact, I read a commentary this week, and the writer of the commentary was wondering if anyone had to pose for the craftsmen as they made these little gold statues. He went on to say, this would be even more comical if it wasn't actually tumours, but hemorrhoids. <laughs> it's really clear, isn't it? The Philistines may well think they have defeated God, but their idol cannot stand up before him, and they themselves end up in utter terror of what God will do. Because God is never really captive to those who oppose him. Isn't that something we need to hear today? Because don't you feel like sometimes today God is under attack? He's opposed by so many people that maybe actually he's losing the battle. I felt this, I think, most sharply recently uh, when following what happened with Israel Folau. Do you know about Israel Folau? He, he's this guy who plays rugby union for Australia. He's one of the best players, actually. And yet he, get, he got fired. His contract is torn up simply because he, he says what the Bible says about human sexuality. For me, I, I used to play rugby, not quite the same rugby that he did, but it's, it's, it struck a chord with me um, as I've seen him walk through this, and I wondered, what does this mean for us? What is this? 
I, I can tell you, honestly, it makes me feel a little bit more timid to speak about Jesus openly. Is that you too? I want to talk actually to the teenagers in the room for a moment. Hi guys, thanks for coming along. Um, I'm coming to fix this afternoon, so be there. Uh, you guys, you guys have actually, you've grown up with this kind of thing all around you. I wrote a sentence. The sentence went like this. When I was growing up, things were different. And I thought, oh, gee, that makes me sound old, so I changed it. Uh, I went to a Christian high school when I grew up. But I also played footy, and no, it was a very different group of people. No one from my high school played footy at the same club I did. And I remember realizing one day that I'm going to actually have to tell my friends at footy that I'm a Christian. And I was a little bit worried about how they'd react. But in the end, it was, actually, it was a complete non-event. It didn't really matter to them. They thought I was a little bit weird. They found it funny that I didn't drink alcohol like they did. But it didn't really matter all that much. Now, I get the impression if you're a teenager here, things are very different for you today, aren't they? To say you're a Christian is actually to bring on ridicule. You stand out a lot. In fact, in a lot of what passes as youth culture, there's a lot of opposition in that toward God. Maybe even your friends are okay with it, but, but, but there, are, there are so many other pressures, so many other voices and influences that want to come in and talk to you, and most of them actually want to pull you away from Jesus. Being a teenager and a Christian today is tough. So I want to encourage you with this. Guys, remember, God, God is not defeated. He's never defeated by those who oppose him. He's not captive to them. So in spite of that pressure that you're feeling then, don't conform, will you? Hold on to God. Stay firm in your faith. Trust your good God and his good promises to you. And seek to please him above all those voices that want your attention. As a church, we need to look after our teenagers, invest in them, support them, encourage them, build them up. Actually, teenagers, again, can I say that Fix is so good. I really want to commend the Fix youth group to you, not just because I'm going to be there this afternoon, although I am, so be there. Uh, Fix is great, though. There's a space where there's other teenagers, often who share similar beliefs to you. There is a bunch of people that you can build friendships with, friendships that will support and sustain you when so much else that you hear wants to pull you away from Jesus. I was actually talking to a guy from Fix recently. He was telling me about how school was going for him and uh, how he's trying to be a Christian openly in, in, in front of his classmates. And he said, it's not easy, it's tough, it's challenging, and you stand out a lot. And as tough as it is at school, he, he's found fixed to be a great place. This is a place where he has friends who will support him in his faith. Friends who'll, who are not afraid to say the tough word, but also who you can talk about. How do, you, how, how do you do that thing as being a teenager and being a Christian together? He goes to fix and he knows he's not alone, even though uh, at school he sometimes feels like that. That's part of why Fix is so good. So, teenagers, I really want to commend Fix Youth Group to you. I really do. 
Are, are you a teenager? Not just teenager. Are, are you someone who finds all this opposition to God in our society a really hard thing today? Remember, God is not opposed. Uh, sorry, God is never captive to those who oppose him. In fact, isn't that what history tells us time and again? Right at the beginnings of Christianity, the Roman world viciously opposed Jesus' followers. And how did that work out? Christianity is the dominant world religion. And actually, right through to modern times, places like China and Iran will vehemently oppose Christianity and, and evangelism. But it's in those places that the church is booming, the church is growing. God's never captive to those who oppose him. So no matter where we see our country go, or no matter where we see our society go, and no matter who, which voices oppose God publicly and loudly, we need to hold on to this reality that God is bigger than all of that. He's never captive to those who oppose him. We started with Israel in chaos. God's defeated, the ark's carried away, Philistines are the overlords. So far, we've already seen two of those have been soundly resolved. Dagon clearly has not defeated God. Actually, God is the victor. And the Philistines clearly are not the overlords who are in control. God is in control. And so really, at this point, the battle's already won, isn't it? And so in the second part of chapter 6, we see that the ark gets returned as well. Uh, as we saw, the Philistines, they're freaking out about the ark. They don't want it to stay in their country. So eventually, they send it back to Israel, and it comes to this town called Beth Shemesh. And the people of Beth Shemesh have a party, actually. They're stoked. They rejoice. They love that God's ark is back. It all seems to be going really well. They make a sacrifice to God. They set up the ark on a big rock. The rock's going to stay there uh, as a witness to the people, a monument to remember what God has done, his great victory. But then tragedy strikes. Verse 19. But God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death, because they looked into the ark of the Lord. And that's where we come to the third point for today. Uh, God wants wholehearted devotion. That really was the problem. These men of Beth Shemesh, they did what God had said not to do. Yeah, sure, they rejoiced when the ark came, and they seemed to be doing the right thing, but then a few moments later, they did disrespecting God. They're not listening to his word. This kind of half-hearted worship is not what God wants. He wants full devotion. I'm not going to talk about this much now because these are some of the themes that we'll revisit uh, next week. We'll go into it more depth then. But it's still true. God wants wholehearted worship. In fact, it takes us back to that first point. God wants our exclusive worship. He wants wholehearted worship. He wants wholehearted devotion. Does he have yours? Let's take a step back and see where we've come. We started with three crises. We end with all of them resolved. We started with a nation who had no leader, who's void of leadership. And yet through these crises, the true leader of God's people emerges. And this really sets us up for the whole book. 
Throughout the rest of the book, we're going to see three main leaders come up, Samuel, Saul, and then David. But right at the beginning of the book, we're left with no uncertainties. The true leader of God's people is God himself. The true leader of God's people is God himself. Which has heaps to say to us. So much. For example, it tells us that we need to look to God for leadership, don't we? We don't primarily look to other people to lead us. We actually look to God. Which means that all of us individually, we bear responsibility to know what God wants for us. When you're faced with the big questions about life, what do you do? I want to say, resist the urge to simply download your favorite preacher talking about the topic or the issue. Resist that urge. Because God's your true leader. Isn't it first best to see what God says about the issue? And then act on what God says. Leaders, people who are leaders, that's not a bad thing. If anything, the Bible says the opposite. Actually, your leaders are a good gift to you, which feels weird for me saying that up here, but nevertheless. But no matter how good your leaders are, they can never take the place of God. They must never become the the source of ultimate leadership, the authority on everything, because that place belongs to God and God alone. We look to God for leadership. And in fact, when we're in positions of leadership then, at home, in our families, in our workplaces, in the different ministries we do around church, when we're in places of leadership, we learn how to lead from the God who leads us. Jesus made this point, didn't he? Jesus looked around and observed that leaders often rule in ways that are self-interested and domineering. And he said, to his, he said to his followers, it's not to be like that with you guys. Because we take our lead from God. This is the God who had everything and yet who humbled, humbled himself to the lowest possible point. He became a servant of us to lead us. God is a servant leader. He wants us to lead like that too. Is that how you lead? When we're in places of leadership, we take our lead, we learn what it is to lead from God, and we also rely on God to be a leader. That is, He's the one who really leads. He's the one who leads powerfully, and so we pray to him. We pray to him to ask, ask him to sustain us as we try and lead our families, to keep us from veering off the path and, and, and leading others off with us as we lead in different ministries around church. We, we pray that God would use us for the good of those who we're leading and serving. We pray we, we, we lead in ways that show we rely on God. And when we're in places of leadership, we need to point, we make sure we're pointing to the one who really is the true leader. See, what good is it if I lead my family as a servant like Jesus and if I pray relying on God, but I never actually point my wife, my kids, if I never point them towards the God who leads me? What good is it if I servant-heartedly give up my time to be a leader at Trinity Kids, but if I spend all my time giving my thoughts and my ideas on life and never actually point the kids to the God who they know? What good is it if I stand up here and preach and never help you fix your eyes 
on your God. Please, if that ever happens, tell me to sit down, won't you? See, God's our true leader. So when we're in positions of leadership, we must never make it about ourselves and about our ideas and our brilliant plans for the future. We've got to point people towards God. Beyond ourselves and to God. To what he says and who he is. Because that's far better than pointing people to me. Why don't we pray at this point? Let's pray together. Our great God in heaven, we thank you that you're the one who leads your people. We thank and praise you, God, that even when it seems like you're captive, when there's lots of forces that are opposing you, that even in those moments, you're far from being captive and defeated, that you are the God who still reigns, the God who's still powerful, the God who still rules. So help us look to your leadership, Father. Our God, we pray that you'd help us lead like you lead. We pray that you'd help us lead sacrificially, relying on you in prayer, pointing to you in all that we do, but also never taking our eyes off you, knowing that you're the one who truly leads us in all that we do. We pray that we'd live this out in our lives this week and always. We pray that this would bring honour to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, we are about to sing about the God who leads us. This God is not like any other God. This God is a holy God.